The Chills of Will podcast is joining Patreon in October. Pete will be spreading the word, sharing links, and discussing the perks that come with Patreon membership during next week's episode with Gustavo Barahona Lopez. Keep your ears and eyes open as we unveil Chills of Will merch like refrigerator magnets and t-shirts and share how to unlock bonus episodes. Hello, I am Pete Real, a high school English and Spanish teacher, an avid reader, and an aspiring writer. Thank you for listening to the Chills at Will podcast, in which we explore the visceral beauty of literature and its connection to our culture, our history, and ourselves. Welcome to episode 143 of the Chills of Will podcast. It's a pleasure today to be joined by Nima Avashia and a little bit about Nima. Nima Avashia was born and raised in southern West Virginia to Indian immigrant parents. She has been a civics and history teacher in the Boston Public Schools since 2003. She's the author of Another Appalachia, Coming Up Queer and Indian in a Mountain Place, which was published in March 2022. How are you today? I'm great, Pete. How are you doing? Good. Can we? I'm great. Thank you. And it's awesome to have you. Such an inc- incredible read. Appalachian, Appalachian. It's, I'm glad you asked. Please. Anytime I get to do this, I'm really happy to do it. It's Appalachia. Okay. Um, like throwing an apple at you is how you say okay. it. Okay. Okay. Well, like I said, the bio does not in any way fully represent the greatness you've done. Um, so we'll, you know, fill in some of those gaps because. The book, which is going to be the main thrust of our conversation, is is a lot autobiographical. Um, like I said, thanks so much for joining me. I'd love to hear about growing up and specifically about your your writing, your reading life. I mean, were were books a big part of your life? The printed word, and also language. You write in the book about about um, about Gujarati and wishing that you knew more. Did, was that your first language? Did you learn them both? What was kind of your parents' philosophy of, of teaching you Gujarati? Yeah, yeah, I mean, Gujarati was definitely my first language. And I think actually, you know, and, and this is a story I think you'll hear from lots of children of immigrants. Um, I went to India the summer before I started kindergarten. Okay. And um, and my parents had sort of like been exposing me to English also, but Gujarati was the main language spoken in our house. Then I went to India, I spent the summer there. And when I came back, I like didn't, really have access to my English like mm-hmm. Gujarati had really sort of cemented itself and my parents got kind of freaked out and they were really worried that I was going to start school and like not have the language skills I needed to access the education uh-huh. in the kindergarten classroom in Cross Lanes, West Virginia where like you know ESL services were not a thing <laughs> like that didn't uh-huh. exist and so they actually got kind of scared and really pulled back on their emphasis of Gujarati because they were worried about the impact um the, on my learning um and they still spoke it to each other um but there was a period of time where I think they really tried to be intentional about speaking English with me mm-hmm. to make sure I would do okay in school 
Um, I think the unintended consequence of that, and this is not their fault at all, is just that, um, you know, my Gujarati is like pretty elementary. Like my spoken Gujarati is fine. I can flow, but like reading and writing, I think I, I have like a third, second, maybe first grade level mm-hmm. ability to like decode um it really i am i am decoding when i read in right, Gujarati, right, right, like, right. right the comprehension is like it takes me a while to get to the comprehension um mm. but in terms of english language books um my life was full of them um from a really really young age i mean my mom says she used to read to me when i was in the womb and mm. and uh and i had an older sister who was seven years older than i am and so i think also i was following her a lot so i would even when I was like very small, like two or three, I was like practicing my letters in the carpet in our house. Right. Like that, it was like just a really kind of word rich and language rich environment. Um, And the thing that's funny about that is that the library in our town was um, it was like a pop-up library. There's another word for them and I'm blocking on the word, but in the seventies, the United States government um, found funding to like put these very small libraries into rural communities. And they basically would pour a concrete slab and then they would build these particle board hexagon shaped things um, that that were like little tiny libraries. Because before that, mm. we had a bookmobile, right? We just had a, okay. a bookmobile that would come around once a week and you would get books from that. But probably when I was five, you know, yeah, four or five, we got this permanent library and I read every book on the shelf more than once like my mom would take me every week to the library i would check out the max whatever the rule was about how many you could take i would check out the max i'd take them home and then next week i'd come back again and do it again um and it was not a very big library so (laughs) i also was something that i like i call a repeat reader which is i would read books again and again and again and not tire of them Partly because that was what was there and partly because I think I found a lot of comfort in that. Mm. So there were like certain series that I just read repeatedly. Like my sister would get mad at me because I think I read the Little House on the Prairie series probably a hundred times, right? <laughs> like I just, she, every time she'd see me, she'd be like, you're reading those books again? And I'd be like, yeah, I can probably recite them by heart even now. Um, and yeah, I think the interesting thing about it for me is that it wasn't like there was a lot of representation on those shelves. I wasn't finding books where I could like see myself directly represented. But I do think that part of reading for me was about accessing worlds beyond Crosslands, West Virginia. Like, mm. are there other spaces and places and lives that I can imagine? And does that help me to sort of expand my understanding of what is possible beyond this very small town where we mm. lived? Mm. Um but something that was really cool for me is um, I went home in April to do a reading at like my hometown bookstore oh, wow. and, and my childhood librarians were on in the audience That's um, cool. who I haven't seen since, you know, I haven't seen them in probably 30 years, uh-huh. but I think they knew how important they were in this journey. Like, I think it really felt like that to them that like they were very aware that the library and they as librarians were such a part of shaping this very long process of getting to writing a book. Um, And and I didn't know they were going to be there. We hadn't talked about it, but it was really just a beautiful thing that kind of, I think, affirmed that idea of like how important books and stories and libraries have been in my life. Oh, so cool. Wow. Yeah. To be able to read at the hometown library, the hometown bookstore. That's so cool. How how small is, is Crosslands like a is like a suburb of Charleston or is it like clearly like a small like is it close enough to that quote unquote big city? Uh yeah, it's it's about half an hour outside of Charleston. Okay. Um 
And it definitely functions as a suburb. It is not rural in the way that you imagine like farmland rural. Past cross lanes, it gets rural. But cross lanes is kind of like a bedroom community for sure. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. You were talking about ideas of representation. Like, did you, when was it that you were able to recognize maybe not being represented? Like, like, could you have articulated that at seven or 15 or 17 or? I think what I could articulate as a young person was that any representation there was, was wrong. Right. Mm. So like you had a poo from the Simpsons and, and I just felt angry when I watched the Simpsons and like all of my friends were like, this is the best show ever. And I was like, I hate this show. I hate the way that it represents Indian people on the screen. Like, Mm. although that is not what the show is about, like for me, that was the main takeaway I had from the show. Um, And that experience of like, when you saw it, yeah, like when I saw myself represented, it was in very narrow and various stereotyped ways, right? So it was only a doctor or a convenience store owner. They always had a really heavy accent. Often they were white actors in brown face. Like Mm. there just was this set of characteristics that made me feel like this is, this is not right. Um, And I ended up, I think, thinking about representation in almost a different way because I felt like the attempts at representation or just like I don't even say I wouldn't even say they were attempting representation but the presentation of South Asian people in um, mainstream media just felt so wrong and like often ended up having negative effects like kids would watch the Indiana Jones movies and then come back and ask all kinds of jacked up questions right Mm -hmm. like um, that I think I found representation of almost in like these uh in like alternate spaces. So like, I love the X-Men comics when I was a kid. Um, And X-Men on the surface has nothing to do with being an Indian kid growing up in West Virginia. But underneath that feeling of like being proximate to belonging, but never belonging, that feeling, which is so salient among the X-Men of like, we're kind of like you, but we're not, mm. um, is the thing that I found representation in, was in mm. that in that feeling. Oh, very interesting. Um, so as you continued to, to read, where did the writing come in? Um, you know, were you, I guess some, maybe even some eureka moments about whether you're 11 or 21, like, I can do this, I got an award, or people really responded to it, or, you know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I started writing, I think, even like stories when I was in elementary school, middle school, like I loved writing. Um, When I was a teenager, I wrote for like, um, our local paper had like a teen um, section. And so I wrote for like the teen section of the paper when I was a teenager. Um, But really, it wasn't until I got to college that I started to feel like, oh, I can do this or like something the things I'm saying have weight or have resonance or people are responding to them. Um, that feeling for me really happened when I went to college. Yeah. With, you know, the, the name of the podcast is the chills of a podcast, the idea of the chills, the thrills that come from, you know, reading those books a thousand times, those ones you've had memorized, you know, a, a line from a poem, those ones that give you the, the you know, the visceral feeling. Who, who are some of those writers? Or what are some of those texts whether they're in those, you know, old, older times or, or now who just, um, you just, they're just go-tos and you're just, you know, stunned by the, the greatness of the writing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, I guess probably an opportune time, but also just like a Salman Rushdie for me has mm. been a writer who's been so important for so long. And I actually, um, 
my partner and I are having a baby in November and I've been reading. Thank you. I've been reading the, the baby Haroon in the sea of stories, which is not the Rushdie book that most people um, think of first, right? Midnight children is the one everyone thinks of first. And Uh I love midnight children, but Haroon in the sea of stories is one of my favorite books. And it has been since I was a teenager. And so rereading it, and um, and just like sort of thinking about the ideas in that book, like I'm really loving it and I'm loving the allegory mm. um, and thinking about this, um, especially in the context of like, you know, he was writing this <laughs> about um, Iran, but actually uh, the sort of like idea of people who try to silence stories is so mm. salient in the United States right now that I find myself really moved and also kind of um, uh stunned by his prescience mm. and about this sort of like these efforts to silence stories are ongoing right. um, and are happening everywhere. And uh, that is a book that, yeah, gives me a lot of chills back in the past and now also. And so your daughter's going to be hearing that one. She's going to be, uh, yeah, that's, that's uh we're going <laughs> to read it a bunch of times. She's going to know it. She's going to know it really, really well. Oh, that's a beautiful thing. You know, you're you're an educator, you're a teacher. We talked about. I also started in 2003. Awesome to hear that. We've been, you know, in in the. I hate saying in the trenches because that's not true, but you know, that's the expressions we use. We've been in it for these almost 20 years now. Um, I wonder how teaching informs your writing and vice versa, and like how you've. I mean, have you always have you always been writing and submitting throughout the years, or is that no. a fairly recent? Phenomenal. Uh, there was a long time when I didn't. Um, I write in the book about an experience where um, my family got got a hold of my senior thesis, mm. which was not supposed to be something they were able to is read. That like, is that like JSTOR or one of those? Yeah, it was, one of like they Google put search. it like online and did someone okay. Google search and they found it. And I didn't even know it was online because when I graduated, you weren't putting master's right. thesis. Undergraduate theses weren't online. They were, right. just, you know, whatever, printed and put in a basement somewhere. Uh. Um, so after that experience of really, um, people being very angry about my writing and my questions, it took me a really long time to write after that. There was a long time where I was not writing. Mm. Um, I, I, I couldn't because of fear and shame and just, um, feeling like people didn't want my words. Mm. Um, so really it was around 2015 that I started to write again Mm. And that was largely in response to the publication of Hillbillyology because I was living in Boston and I was watching people up here pick up that book and say like, this explains Appalachia and this explains why people are voting the way they do. And, um, and, you know, I saw a book with the word hillbilly on the cover and I got excited because hillbillies (laughs) are not a word that you hear people say in Boston, Massachusetts. And I, you know, I started reading and very quickly was like, Oh no, this book is not it. Um, It is not, I don't recognize anything in this book. It's not people. I know it's not places I know. Uh And it is a book that completely erased people like me. Hmm. There are no immigrants in that book. There are no black people in that book. Um, Although there are lots of immigrants and lots of black folks in Appalachia, they're erased, right? And um, I think that for the first time, when I read that book, I realized that like I had always thought about growing up Indian in Appalachia as this like niche experience that like no one would ever really understand. When I told people they didn't believe me, they'd be like, you're lying. You're not. No, there are no Indian people in Appalachia, right? That was a response. Mm. Um, And so I had always just assumed like like, no one's going to care about this story. And then when I read that book, I was like, wait a minute, 
if no one knows that story, they're just going to keep believing this one. Uh, and so it really kind of felt to me like I it there was not going to be some magical moment where people recognize there were immigrants in Appalachia unless immigrants in Appalachia were writing their story. Right. Right. Like I couldn't wait for somebody else to acknowledge my existence or my family's existence or our history. I had to do that if I wanted it to be acknowledged. And so it really was in 2015 that I started um, that I started writing really seriously and started to kind of think about what it would look like to put these stories on the page Mm -hmm. and to try to render this experience of growing up Mm -hmm. in Appalachia. But I think the the other part of your question about young people um, is I, I think. I couldn't have written this book without the work that I do with young people. I think the way that this book is written, um, the kind of clarity hmm. is because I'm a teacher. Hmm. Uh, like I learned that clarity through teaching, right? Like um, it is not a book that is like written in like extremely like abstract or literary language. No. Um, Cause that's not who I am as a person. And I'm not that way as a person because I'm a teacher and I want you to understand what I'm trying to say. I don't want you to be confused when you walk away. I want it to be clear in the same way that as a teacher, like you want kids to walk away understanding what the lesson was about. Mm -hmm. So I think my work with young people informs the style of writing in the book. And I also think that working with young people and seeing what it is like when they don't have mirrors, when they can't find books that reflect them or what it's like when they do find books that reflect them, Um, also helped me to recognize the need for this book, Hmm. Um, which is that if you're a queer kid growing up in Appalachia, if you're a queer brown kid growing up in Appalachia, how many mirrors do you have, right? I didn't have any when I was growing up. The first time I read a book that felt like a mirror was Good Talk by Mira Jacob. Hmm. I was 38 when that that book came out, right? And it was the first time where I was like, oh, this is what it means, Right. To have it be that somebody's experience and their questions line up so closely with your own. Mm. Um, And that feeling coming so late and then seeing what that was like for the young people who I work with, right, when they found a mirror, definitely, I think, was a big impetus for being like, I have to have the courage to put the story out. Like, it's not enough to write the stories down. I need them to get out Mm. Um, because kids kids in Appalachia need that mirror, too. So cool. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, you're, what you're talking about, you're not you're not dumbing it down, you know, as a teacher, you're not dumbing it down, but you're making it like more accessible. And that comes through in the book. I mean, it's not it's not preachy, but it's for sure. I mean, there's a lot to be learned. There's a lot like not even morally, but history, historically and, and all kinds of things. There's so much to be learned, but it's very accessible. Have if you had students read the book, if you had parents read the book, like the local community, like what what's the response there? Yeah, actually both. Um, a lot of my students have read the book. There were some copies that were circulating in school, mm. which was really cute. Um, right. I, they were very excited about the whole publication process. There was oh. a lot of drama around my launch day and like whether the books were going to come in time. Oh, no. And there was a, the books were in Chicago. There was a storm. We were Google mapping how fast the books could get there. Kids were very, very excited about all of that. Mm. Um but yeah, young people, I've also used some of the essays in the book with my kids. Like I've used the, the hair, the hair essay is one oh, in particular. Okay. 
that I think for a lot of students is one that they can really relate to. Mm. Um, this idea of like figuring out your physical appearance as a part of figuring out your overall identity is I think a place a lot of kids can connect to. And so they, they've loved, I think, reading that essay. Um, and in terms of parents, yeah, definitely some, um, when I did my launch, there were actually a lot of like Boston Public Schools community members, parents, former students, colleagues, in that audience. And that was really, really lovely to kind mm. of feel that affirmation from this community that I built in my time in, in, in Boston. So cool. W what are some of those books that have resonated with your students that have, have provided the mirrors for them? I mean, whew, lots over lots. time, some of which are like uh, less popular now for many reasons. But I mean, one book that I think my students really love is Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time yeah. Indian by Sherman Alexi. I mean, that is a book that I think for so many kids, um, they see themselves in it in lots of different ways, especially if you're a working class kid, no matter where you live. Like, I think there's just a lot of resonance for kids with that book. Um, that's one I think that a lot of my students have loved Jason Reynolds work um, mm. and really found a lot of joy in that. Elizabeth Acevedo's books, oh, um, yeah. The Poet X is a big favorite of a lot of my, my students. Um, yeah, I mean, I think mm. kids are hungry for those stories. Like they right. really, really are hungry for them. Right. Man, what, do, what do we do with Sherman Alexie's work? What do we do with I the don't work? Know. You know? I know. Because, like you said, the work resonates so much. It's, it's oh. like the kind of book that like, it makes me sad to think about kids not reading that book. I know. And, and yet yeah. also it's very complicated. Right. Um, and I think, you know, my inclination around books is to say like, can you contextualize them? Like, so is the, is it that we don't read it? Right. Or is it that we read it and we read it in the context of kind of knowing the broader story? Uh -huh. Um, and I don't know the right answer all the time, but it is a thing I wonder about because especially in an era where where book banning is becoming such a um, frighteningly popular thing to do, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. like part of me is very hesitant to take things off the shelf. Sure. Like right. I just feel like do by doing that, do we like open the door to more of that, right? You, you, mm -hmm. it's a question I think we have to think about. That's a and slippery, slippery slope. Yeah. It's a very complicated thing. And I don't, I don't know the answer, but I do know that like, as a, an adult, right? Like I can read things by writers and also know that writers are fallible and that writers are human beings. And that like, as human beings who are fallible, like, we do bad things, we make mistakes, we hurt people. Mm -hmm. Like that doesn't, like I can hold those two things in my head at the same time, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I, I do wonder as an educator, if that's like part of my job too, is to help kids build the capacity to hold both of those things in your head at the same time. Someone can write something that you find really meaningful and really powerful. And they can also be someone who has caused harm um, because all of us have the capability to cause harm. Right. And would we be better off if we were in that conversation mm -hmm. with kids as opposed to a conversation where it's really adults on all sides of this kind of being like, take this book down, take this book down, take yeah. this book down. Yeah. I don't know. I think people might disagree with me. I'm, and I'm not I'm not claiming I like know the answer, but I guess that's the question I think about. Yeah, I think yeah, obviously in agreement, just that the work is transcendent, incredible, and the, the deeds were horrific, you know, right. Yeah. Uh.
Well, yeah. thank you and there's that. a lot of that. <laughs> right. There's, there's a there's a lot of that in our world, right. unfortunately. Um, yeah. Exactly. I want to talk about another Appalachia. App, throwing an Appalachia. Okay. Appalachia. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, now you got it. <laughs> heck of a long title. That seems to be the the trend of these days, huh? Mm-hmm. A, lot of, a lot of colons, you know. A lot of you know. But there's a lot going on in the title, and, and it, you know, lets you know what's going on. I love you. You talked about a lot of it, but like the seeds for like making it a book, like when when you kind of realize like these essays have that through line, how that worked. I think that I didn't know. Uh, I think that people in my writing community knew before I did. Mm-hmm. So I there's a great writing nonprofit in Boston called Grub Street, um, and mm-hmm. I have taken lots of classes there. Part of the way that as a teacher, I figured out how to like make space for writing was like, I need deadlines and I need accountability and I need community or this isn't going to happen because the to-do list as a teacher is endless, right? You could always be doing something and it wouldn't be writing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in those writers workshops, really people who started to read my work um, and people who I'd be in workshop with again and again, kind of started to be like, there are themes and trends here, right? There's, there are through lines that we're seeing and we think you need to push them out further. Hmm. Um, and so that was sort of like one space that was really important and helpful for me. And the other space that became really important for me is I went to the Kenyan Writers Workshop. Oh, cool. Um, uh, first as a student and then as a fellow. And I had the opportunity to work with an amazing mentor. Her name is Gita Katari. She's an essayist and a professor at Pitt. And having the opportunity to share work with her and for her to see my work evolve over the course of a couple Mm. of summers and to be in that conversation about like, okay, here's what I see happening with your work. um, And here's the direction I see it going in made a really big difference. Mm. Um, I don't think that there was anything in me by myself that would have made me at some point be like, and now I have a book. I am not that confident. Um, And I think I would have just like kept, circling around it without actually being like, and now I got to go in a direction, but having, um, having colleagues and mentors who were sort of like putting that into my head again and again was a massive part of getting to the point where I was like, okay, no, I can do this. Hmm. Um, and I need to do it. And people are telling me it's ready to go. Then I gotta, I gotta go with it. Oh man. The, it's a beautiful start. The, the way you start the book is, is, is beautiful as the word it's, uh, you know, it's in second person, there's a lot of emphasis on like the vast emptiness of the town, right. Of your hometown. Um, you know, the little league that should be in season, uh, but no one's there. You know, a lot of physical manifestations of the, of the flight, not the flight, I guess what would be the term, but yeah. just like, right. Like the emptiness, the kind of the barrenness of the town. Yeah. What made you decide to go second person? Cause I know that's, that's hard to do. Yeah. It's a big swing, especially for right? the first essay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I knew that if I wanted this book to be something not just read by people in Appalachia, but also read by people outside of Appalachia, mm-hmm. I needed to ground them in place mm-hmm. first yeah. because otherwise like they would have no idea. Like they, most people have not been to Appalachia. The most people will say, I was like, Oh, I, I drove through once right mm-hmm. on the highway. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I couldn't figure out like, either I was going to have to like set up a place really early or I was going to end up doing a ton of work around place in every single essay. Sure. Um, and when I was thinking about, it, I mean, driving, when you're a kid who lives in a small place, driving is like such a big part of your experience hmm. and your identity is like, 
you drive everywhere, right? And so I was trying to think about, and directions like are a big part of it. And especially in the days before Google, like people told you, they narrated how you went somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of was like, okay, if I want to really ground people in this place, I think I'm going to narrate the drive for them. Like uh -huh. I'm going to, I'm going to make them do the drive with me. Right. Yeah. I'm going to have them experience that way of entering into the space um, so that they can kind of see it exactly the way I see it in my head. And so that they're sort of grounded and located in place the way I would be. Nailed it with the, uh, you know, like I said, taking us for a drive, taking the reader for a ride. And that makes so much sense. Like the grounding in place right away, you're not going to have to do as much down the road. Right. Yes. Yes. All of the over quantity. Definitely. One of the lines straight from, I believe that first, yeah, the first essay is, is quote, of your parents' immense efforts to Americanize only the rose bushes endure. I, I believe going back to the old house and, I, you know, later on in the book, you talk about the the flags and buying three flags the day after 9-11 and how everything changed. Um, did, do you know the people that live in the house now? Like, do you, did you go by and knock on the door? Like, I haven't knocked on the door. I mean, I've gone by a hundred times, you know, like every, I'm going to go home. I'm going home next week. And like, I, I mean, every time I go, cause also like people still live on the street who I, I'm still close to, right. Okay. So I see them. Yeah. Um, but no, you know, it's, uh, you know, that thing, you can't go home again. It's like, you really mm, can't. And in yes. the place that I remember, it's not that place anymore. My dad had a huge garden. Uh, it took up half of the yard. Right. That garden is gone. It's, it's grassed over. Like so many of the things that I associate with that place aren't right. there. I almost feel like I'd feel sadder right. to try to pretend that it was the same place. Yes. So the hundredth time you drive by and they're going to be like, oh, there she goes again. You know, <laughs> if you want to <laughs> All right. Okay. Fine. <laughs> the, it's only borderline stalkery, I guess. I, exactly. Yeah. Borderline. Borderline. <laughs> like, like I said, I love how, you know, that chapter that essay ends with like the physical manifestation of of people leaving that, you know, the headless basketball hoops. I want to know what is spotlight. You spotlight. Write, you talk about spotlight, the game. What is spotlight? Oh gosh. I don't know another word for it. Okay. Uh, it's like when you play hide and seek in the dark, but with a, with a flashlight and then you, okay. instead of tagging people, like if you get the light on them, then, mm. then they're, then they're out. Yeah. Shoot. We probably play that. Okay. Yeah. I'm sure there's another word for it, but I, I only know spotlight as the word. That, for it. it makes sense. It makes sense. But I mean, like you talk about, there's been a lot there, you know, maybe not as much as one would like, but there's been a lot written about Appalachia, not, not always, you know, a lot of the, you know, they always talk about, right, like, oh, some New York Times reporter goes to, you know, Kentucky and writes like a, you know, man on the scene, but you do such a good job of just avoiding the usual tropes, you know, yeah, well, yes, because, you know, so well, right? I mean, we, you know, we've, we've read a lot about like, oh, you know, the, all the, the opioid epidemic and, you know, all the, the industry has left. Um, did, how did you, is it just natural that being from there, you were able to avoid those tropes or did you really have to pay a lot of attention to like what you included and what you didn't include? No, I mean, I think that, I mean, I think all of it's true, right? Like it's not like the opioid stuff isn't happening. It sure. is happening and it's really intense. And I think even in the first paragraph of the first essay, like Charleston has a nickname of needle city now, right? Mm -hmm. That didn't used to be its nickname. Like, um, it is all there. And I think that what I felt was like, that's all people knew. Like if you mm -hmm. ask people what the thought came to their mind when they heard Appalachia, like they were going to say five things and those five things were going to be coal, opioids, um, 
the Beverly Hillbillies, mm. uh, and you know, Randy Moss, and Randy Moss. Uh, you know, like I try to think of one more thing. Uh, country Jason Williams. Oh. Yeah, there you, country, <laughs> there you go. Look at you. You know, Jason Williams and Randy Moss went to high school together. They did, me. right? Wasn't wasn't a quarterback to receive? He was a quarterback. I think Jason yeah. Williams was. Yeah, and they yeah. played basketball together too. And really, mm-hmm. they were amazing on the basketball court. They went yeah. to my like one of my rival high schools, so I got oh, to play okay. Watch them play when they were in high school, which was amazing. But oh, yeah. yeah, there'd be like five things they'd know, sure. and then that would be all, right? And all of their ideas would be formed based on those five things. Um, and so mm-hmm. what I felt like I wanted to do in the book was be like, well, yes, I can acknowledge all of those things, and there's so much more. Right. And this is a much more complicated place than the mainstream narrative gives it credit for being. Um the flatness of the narrative around Appalachia is the thing I really was trying to push back against, which is mm-hmm. you think this place is one thing, mm-hmm. but what I'm going to try to show you is how many different things it is. Right. So you think Appalachia is all coal. Well, let me talk to you about chemicals, sure. um, which yeah, are yeah, yeah. a massive industry in Appalachia, but it's not the thing people talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, and you think that Appalachia is all white, but I'm going to talk to you about, immigrants and Indian immigrants and you think it's Christian and I'm going to talk to you about Hindus and I'm going to just Mm. like keep pushing your brain to be like and there's more and there's more and there's more and that is not to say that my more is also in all inclusive right sure the the name of the book is another Appalachia one of many one of many right it's another it's that there's not one there Mm. are many um is the goal right and I I'm just trying to disrupt your brain enough to make it so that you can't have that stereotype anymore mm. because you, you, every time you try to go to that place, it's interrupted by like, but wait, like I've heard about this other thing. I've heard about this other thing. I've heard about this other thing. Mm-hmm. That's how I think you bust stereotypes in the long run is to mm. be like, if I give you enough counter examples, you can't hold that stereotype anymore. It falls apart because, um, because you now have a much broader picture and a more nuanced view. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, I think, what I was writing into was trying to write, like, what does a nuanced picture of this place look like? How mm. can I push you to get past your stereotypes and into, like, real human beings and real relationships and, like, substantive time in this place such that, like, your brain won't give you permission to stereotype mm. in the same way? Wow, that's, I like that's a great line. Yeah. Another great disruptor of brains is is W. Kamel Bell. Yes. Right. He did that recent um, episode in Appalachia. Were you were you mentioned in an article on CNN? Or were you in the documentary both? No, I wasn't in the documentary. Though a lot of my my good friends were, which was amazing. Uh, okay. The 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 documentary really focused on black folks in Appalachia, which is uh-huh. just awesome um, and really important. Again, to to like show that that is not recent history. That is long history sure. booker t washington was born 20 minutes from where i grew up mm. carter g woodson is from west virginia like we're t- like this is old history right henry louis um, gates you said henry louis gates you got yeah. it um walter dean myers as another teacher you'll appreciate great, walter dean myers great his grandma was from bridgeport um wow. and he spent he when he he if you ever read his memoir bad boy um mm. he wrote a young adult memoir about um, getting in a lot of trouble in New York and getting sent to West Virginia to live uh, with his grandma. Uh, um, so this is like 
these are like generations of people who have mm-hmm. been in this area, right? And Kamau Bell did an awesome job, I think, of showing not just like here people who are here in the present, but also what is the history sure. uh, uh, of, uh, of Black Appalachia. Um, I had uh, the really lovely experience of getting to talk to a CNN reporter who is also Desi. Her family mm. is from Pike, Pikeville, Kentucky. Okay. And she... Uh, reached out to me to do like a companion piece to say, okay, I thought, yeah. yeah. So Kamal Bell's telling this story. I'd like to do a companion piece about um, both her experience and and um, mine, which is kind of neat. Wow, very neat. The second chapter, the second essay is starts with um, you know talks about your parents coming over to to the United States. Talks about your dad and the basically putting a putting an end by himself almost to like the rabid dogs in his yeah. part of India, right? Well, in a village, but yeah. In a village, yeah. yeah. yeah well, not yeah. right, not at the whole like state or region. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, just the village where he was at the time. But but very impressive. And that, you know, when people say, Oh, we didn't know there were Indians in let's say West Virginia, you you talk about a lot a lot of times it was they were they went to places that had rural and urban poverty. You know, maybe there were places that weren't as quote unquote desired. I thought a lot of um Abraham Vergesi, have you read his yep. work? I have. His work was super important. Uh, actually, his work was super important to my parents. Okay, uh, it is to me, but I think for my parents, when it, um, in my own country came out, I think there was like this real deep feeling of being seen. That was mm-hmm. their mirror. I mm-hmm. think in many ways, his book became their mirror of like, yeah. you know, he was in East Tennessee in the mountains, but right. similarly, sort of like telling the story of being the the Indian doctor in um, mm-hmm. in a rural place. Um, yeah, it was a really really powerful book. I think for my family when it came out. He, um, am I correct? I think Regasi is like George or it's, it's like a Christian name. I believe yes. the history of it, right? Yes, he is. Um, he is South Indian and his family, I think is South Indian. They're Christian. So yes. Yeah. So it's like a very common Abraham. Name. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. Crossing the fingers. I think I might get him on next year. I was, I was talking to him. I think he has a book coming out next year. Can I come um, back? <laughs> yeah, no, you can be the, you can be the little window. We can, you can be the third Zoom, you know, window. I would, I'm, I'm serious. I would, I'm serious. I'm serious. Let's do it. I would like fall over with joy <laughs> if I got to do that. Please. He, he, <laughs> I I was just in touch with him on email and incredibly just nice. Like like you know, I would be the one who would be unbelievably honored to have him. He was kind of like, oh, I'm sorry, not this doesn't work now, but maybe in 2023. But but uh, for me, it was the tennis partner. It was a, it was an incredibly mm-hmm. moving book. Incredibly yeah, and I mean, book. I don't know. Did you read Cutting for Stone? I, I have that in my library. I've read a little bit of it. I haven't unfortunately read the whole thing. No. Speaking of books that give you chills, yeah. Cutting for Stone is an epic. It's okay. incredible. Yeah. It's a oh. it is a masterpiece of a book. It's like I sometimes I read a book and I'm like, how did you do that? Yeah. You know, that feeling. Yeah. Uh I had that feeling when I read Cutting for Stone, which is like, how did your brain do this? How did it put okay. all these stories together? I felt that way when I read All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr. Uh-huh. I was just like, I I need like, if I could open your brain and like figure out how you are organizing stories and putting this all together and thinking about these threads, it was um, really just awe-inspiring. And, and Cutting for Stone is like that. It is a, a tremendous piece of work. Well, maybe you can. Like I said, maybe you can be part of it. So we'll 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 put it out in the universe so both of us can be talking to him maybe in 2023. Well, that that would be yeah. like I would have peaked. I will say <laughs> I, I will have peaked. Only downhill from there, right? <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> but I mean, uh, you know, a very obviously a worldwide tragedy. Correct me, is it Bhopal? Is that how you pronounce mm-hmm. it? Yep. Right. So another great writer, Indian American writer, is is, is Chaya Bhuvaneshwar. Mm-hmm. Do you know her work at all? 
I do. She actually lives like 20 minutes from me. Yes. That's right. She's a Bostonian. I know she's from yeah. New York originally. But so she, one of her stories in her collection for the White Elephant, one of her stories is about, is a fictional, fictional account of, of the 1984 explosion, right? Yeah. And so your dad was working for Carbide. What, is that the full name of the company? Union, Union Carbide. Union, Union Carbide, right? Yeah. And in reaction to that, I want to say there were like 2,000, 3,000 who were killed. Oh, I mean, the official reports are, are probably lowball, right? Like, okay. Yeah, I think some people have said upwards of 10, 15,000. Oh, my God. Uh, it's, it's unclear. Like, yeah, the difference between the official reporting and the unofficial mm-hmm. numbers is quite wide there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the thing to know is that that chemical plant had like a wall around it. Uh-huh. And in India, and even now, then and even now, for folks who are like, who do not have any other form of shelter, like if uh-huh. there's a wall, that gives me one surface, right? Okay, right? And then I can put out a tarp or I can do things around it, but I already have one wall here. So mm. there were a lot of people living in very close proximity to the plant without really any protection. Sure. Uh, and so they're just the immediate impact of being so close. I, it, it impacted a lot of people. Well, I mean, so you really opened up in that chapter. I mean, that, you know, your dad as an Indian, Indian, Indian American you know, from India was, was kind of trotted out as like a token. I mean, is that safe to say from the company? Yeah. I mean, I think the company, right. Was like, we're going to, we're going to have to send a team to respond to this. Uh-huh. It would be really good for us. If the person who was the right. face of this, or if one of the people who was the face of this is an Indian person, I think that's right. the way they thought about it. Right. Uh, yeah. Which obviously goes with a lot of themes throughout the book, later essays too, about, you know, this idea of having to be a standout or feeling like you have to be a standout or, or be quiet, you know, in some ways be go along with like the mainstream culture right yep yeah it sounds like you know you talked about a lot of maybe your earlier conversations with your dad you remember them being more like monologues rather than than conversations dialogues do you have you had have you talked to him about those times i mean to imagine what he was going through what his decision making was he he really doesn't talk about it um you know it's like i think it was incredibly hard and i think probably really traumatic like which is not a word that we often like assign Mm. to our parents but i can only imagine what it was like to go into disaster Mm. right when most people are leaving and you're going in and you're responsible for like explaining or treating or doing any of those things i I think it probably was really hard it's not something he talks about um but i do think that the you know, the pressure on him was incredible. And he was younger than I am. He was 39. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's like, he's 39. He has two kids. He's an immigrant in Appalachia. I think Mm -hmm. he was pretty clear about the stakes for him and his family. And I think, you know, um, something I feel like I've really spent lots and lots of time thinking about as I get older is just how much of my parents' choices was circumscribed by fear Mm -hmm. and was circumscribed by like, there is no safety net. Like Mm. we are the safety net. Like if this doesn't work, there's nothing under us. Like that is an incredible weight to carry all the time. Um, And it's a weight that I don't have to have because of them. Right. Right. Um, uh, but I, I think that that was very salient for them all the time. Well, I mean, the, the, one of the things that makes the book so great is that, you know, it's not, it's not binaries. It's not evil and, and, you know, angel it's uh, you know, you, you write about yourself, not, you know, not always, in, you're not, you don't make yourself out to be perfect because nobody is, yeah. but you know, but there's, 
the idea of you very similar to your father. He's an ethical person in the neighborhood. He helps everyone out with medicine, with advice. You know, I like how you wrote that you as a teacher have given so many loans with 0% interest. (laughs) We we know what that's like, Yep. (laughs) you know, and then kind of, you know, then kind of the opposites of him, you know, if, whether he was forced to or not, and there's like, you said, there's so many different things going on there, but, but you as more of the rabble rouser as a teacher. Um, and then, you know, this idea of towing the line with, with him being the first generation, you being second generation where you have more of a safety net, like you just said so well. Yeah. Right? And I also have a union, which my dad didn't mm-hmm. have. Mm-hmm. Also not a small thing, right? My dad was right. not, was not a member of the union. He worked with like the folks he was working with were all unionized, but he uh-huh. was not in the union. Yeah. So even just thinking about that safety net is different. Um, like I can say a lot and I have a lot of protection for my union and saying what I say. Mm-hmm. It creates, again, it's another kind of safety net. Definitely. The the third chapter, help me please, is it Nav, Navratri? Navratri, yep. Navratri. Yeah. It, you know, it talks about the, the real small and insular, and I mean that in the, the most positive way, small, insular, warm community. Um, and just how every auntie is profiled and you see how this community has shaped you. Um, I love that. And it ends with your mom. So, you know, it's kind of going around this circle. I love that. Like idea of like a moment in time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's now the breath starts on Monday. So this is like, oh, I wow. wrote it. I wrote it during that time of year. It is that time of year again. Um, I'll be home for the first time in a really long time. Mm-hmm. I'm going to be home for Navratri. Yeah. Um, and so it will be interesting because a lot of those aunties aren't there anymore, but, oh, um, wow. so I have to figure out what I'm going to do, but right. yes, um, very much about like all of these women who, who shaped me in lots of different ways. I just feel like, you know, some of the great movies and, and TV shows that have that, you know, that, that frozen in time. I don't mean like Zach Morris frozen in time. <laughs> You get that reference, right? Yes. yes. Okay. <laughs> Although that's pretty good too. But, you know, just that like, and just kind of like, wow, what a, what a moment in time and just going around and, and it ends with your mom as like the, you know, the builder of bridges, the one, the one who brought people together. Um, the fourth chapter, Wilt, we're talking about Wilt the still, we're talking about Wilt Chamberlain. Yeah. Right. So I may be conflating some stories here. You probably know this one too, where like, where Shaq, I think actually worked with Rick Barry, you know, who was famous for the underhand free throws. He was the assistant coach, wasn't he? For the probably right. I think he was the assistant coach for the Lakers for a time. And Shaq was doing really well, but he just nope. Because it doesn't look it doesn't look cool. It doesn't look cool. It looks you look like a wimp. Yeah, and Shaq was a terrible free throw shooter, right? Like that was like that was his weakness. He was the worst at shooting free throws. And yeah. Right. My understanding was that he pretty much was like, yes, this will help me do a lot better, but no, I'm not going to do it because, right. So what was the importance of, um, you said that that was a story that really resonated with a lot of people in your, in your writing classes and stuff, your writing community. What, um, but what was the connection to you and, and Wilt? I mean, are you as good of a player as Wilt? <laughs> no, le- I mean, kind of same. not at all. <laughs> uh, no, not at all. I think that um, the connection for me isn't to Wilt except that I similarly to him and like that I really struggled with shooting granny style for, I think the same reasons that Shaq Mm -hmm. struggles and that Wilt struggled, which Mm -hmm. is like this feeling that it somehow makes you less right Mm -hmm. in a context where I already felt like I was less. So it would, it would like confirm a thing that I already was feeling. Uh Um, For me, what's powerful about that story is it's about the role of mentors in your life and like how much 
of an impact it can have when an adult is just beside you Mm. for a long period of time and just is like, I'm here. Yeah. I'm here. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. I'm here and I'm going to be here. Um, I think so much of how I am as a teacher is shaped by how I was coached by Carl Bradford Mm. um, because I learned so much about adult child relationships um, that are not your parental relationship, but like how an adult can be a nurturing presence in someone's life over time. I had that. Mm -hmm. And so I think it, you know, I have former students who are 30 who like, I'm still Mm -hmm. in very, very close touch with. Right. Mm -hmm. I think I know how to do that because that was done for me. Right. Um, and so I think, Part of why I love that essay is it, it's a place where I really get to honor that relationship and the way that I think it still informs like who much so much of who I am as an adult. Mm-hmm. Part of what I think is really important about that essay is that um, Carl Bradford passed away several years uh. ago. Um, and, you know, I think um, for his kids, when that essay was published, I think it was a really powerful experience um, to see on the page, like someone who you love so much and that like someone else saw yeah. everything you loved in that person. Definitely. Right. That like you might have those feelings about your parent, but you don't know that other people also have those feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't, you probably never anticipate that like they're going to get written or sort right. of shared in that way. Yeah. And I mean, they've been amazing. Like they sent me a Jersey that mm. says heart and hustle on it. Oh, um, yes. Actually on my book tour, I got to see several members of his family at different readings and they, um, they like carved me a plaque for my book tour in honor of it with mm. wood from his wood garage. So it's like wood that he had saved and oh, they like wow. made me a beautiful plaque with it. Yeah. So I think it's just also part, part of what makes it special is I think it's the essay where there's the most like sort of feeling of like, um, of like honoring someone in a way that, um, that not a lot of people get to be honored in their lives. Mm-hmm. Is, is there a difference for you for feeling different versus feeling less than is that was different the same as less than you know you're talking about like you know that maybe the underhand free throws would set you apart i think but- it is possible to feel different and not feel less than uh-huh. if no one's making you feel less than i think that's possible yeah i think that unfortunately like and i talk about some in the book but i think that there were a lot of messages of less than happening too and so um, it didn't just feel different. It felt less. Right. Right. right? Um, really, really stood out to me is that you, you wrote a, in that chapter that you, something to the effect of you never felt so American as you did with Coach Bradford. Yep. Right. Yeah. Man, the fifth chapter, the fifth essay, Mr. B. Oof. Man. So you write a lot about, about Mr. B and how much he and his wife did for you um, how much they, you know, they and other families were like, not sure what to do with a vegetarian, you know, Hindu family. And they, you know, they made it work. And, um, but you, you know, that you were an odd couple, you and, and Mr. B and you got, you'd work together on things and help each other out. Um, and he unfortunately lost his wife a few years back. Your parents even did like a what dedication of like a hospital ward, uh, a hospital a room. Hospice, a hospice room. Yeah. Right. 
but he, as years have gone on, he's become more virulent, you know, because of Facebook, social media, Trump, this Trump, that anchor babies, all just the, just the, just the, the vile, the, the vile things. How do you, how do you balance those things? How do you balance the fact that you had so many years, so many great years together and, but it's, seems to be impossible you're talking about you like wanted to write something on Facebook but you stopped yeah yeah uh I think I I think I really trust the love and that makes me want to interrogate what's happened Mm -hmm. and to feel like it's actually something that's happened to him right like and not just happened to him I would actually say this is a thing that has happened to lots of people in our country lots of people have been sold a really raw deal and they've Mm. been sold a hateful narrative and in the absence of other narratives Mm. and in the presence of a lot of desperation and a lot of pain which is real people Uh have people have bought the narrative right like Mm. i i I, you know like i see the same thing mr b sees when we look at our hometown it's not Mm. okay what's happening there it's Mm. not a healthy place people are struggling the difference is my understanding of why relative to his understanding of why Hmm. i have one analysis and he has another one right Mm -hmm. and so the thing i i feel like i want to think about and the thing i think we need to talk about as a country is like how are we ending up with such different analyses of what's happening right i don't think that the conditions in appalachia and the rust belt are up for dispute like Mm. that's not debatable right Mm. like you can't debate the existence of an opioid epidemic you can't debate Mm. the loss of employment in blue collar jobs you can't debate the dismantling of unions those are facts those Mm -hmm. things have happened where we're running into trouble is in our explanation of why like so what is the root cause of the joblessness what is the root cause of the addiction what is the root cause Mm -hmm. of the pain um and there's a really simplistic xenophobic hateful explanation being offered Mm-hmm. by a lot of politicians on the right which is like this is all happening because of undocumented immigrants this is all happening because of queer people and trans people this is all happening because of black people like that is the narrative that's being offered is one of exclusion and hate and blame mm-hmm. right and there are other narratives they're more complicated mm-hmm. like you're going to have to talk about like 40 years of policy that has basically enabled corporations to like take all their work overseas Mm. and not have to protect workers. Like it's Mm. not an easy, quick explanation, but it exists. Sure. Right. And it's just that I think what's happened is that that, that hateful narrative is so easy to post and tweet and share. Mm. And I think it's just cemented itself into a lot of people's heads. um, And it's wrong. Can you, can you run for city council or mayor or something? Please, please. That, that, that is please. a question I often get asked at my readings and my answer is no. Uh, <laughs> I don't yeah, think anyone in, in Boston smart. is interested in that narrative. Uh, <laughs> but I have a lot of faith actually that there are lots of folks in Appalachia who believe the same thing I believe and are trying to do good work. Yeah, yeah. Uh, vote for Booker, Kentucky, vote for Booker. Okay, yes, say, yes, right? yes, like, yes, 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 yes. Um, right, like there are lots of people doing the work and- and it's just a matter of like, how do we lift those voices up? How do we amplify sure. those messages? Because because there's tons of people there who think the same thing I do and are trying to get loud to combat that narrative. But right. I, I do really feel like um, 
I think it's a thing that's been done to people. Like, I don't mm. think it's a thing where um, people who I loved suddenly have like morphed into evil demons. Like, mm. I don't believe that. I believe that people who I love have been offered really terrible explanations for the conditions that they find themselves in. Well, the, one, the question that really stood with me from that, from that chapter is, you know, the idea of like that, that West Virginia's non-white population is only about 5%. And that obviously, you know, he, I mean, the privilege that he has, that we have as, as white men is that, you know, you're like, oh, I want to shield him from this, shield him from that. Or, you know, you give him this break. Oh, he's older. Oh, you know, he's had trauma in his life. He's had pain, grief. And then the question was, does Mr. B ever think to shield me? Next chapter, um, you describe your partner, Laura, and you as, you know, quote, quote unquote, quite the complicated pair. Man, I loved it. I, I, thank you for that good memory. My my Italian grandparents, you know, went into the usual Sinatra and all that, but they love Kenny Rogers. <laughs> and I love and I love hip hop. And I know Maya and I know Ghetto Superstar. I know <laughs> my, my daughter sings it. And I'm like, that is the Dolly Parton song. So I went, thank you. I went and listened to it on YouTube where Laura was thinking Maya and you were thinking... Kenny Rogers and Dolly Parton. <laughs> yes, exactly. So if you're listening, listen to Islands in the Stream, right? <laughs> um, and, you know, you're singing different parts from one lover to from one corner <laughs> to another, et cetera. They Remind don't mean me, the same thing right, at all, but, you know. Right. Remind me, please, of the meaning of, of Garhe Avjo. Garhe Avjo. Not bad. Not bad. Thank you. Thank uh, you. It means come home. Uh-huh. It means come home. So, right. Like, I think the whole thing in that essay is I have all these questions about what's going to happen when I take Laura home. Right. Is my Indian family who's both Indian and has then spent their adult lives in Southern West Virginia in, in a very religious and pretty conservative place. Mm -hmm. um, how are they going to respond? And, and knowing that like, they would never, um, they'd never be like, Oh no, we won't see you. Right. That would uh -huh. not happen. But that the question would be like, can we come home? Like, is that going to be okay? Uh -huh. right? right? Like, yeah, we'll meet you in a restaurant or we'll like see you out here. Is oh, a different yeah. thing than saying, yeah. no, come home, stay with us, eat at our table, like, you know, your family, your home. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it meant so much that like, you know, in the face of all this doubt that I had built up in my head, right? All the silence that I had filled with like, well, silence must mean mm -hmm. that it's not okay. Um, their response was the opposite. And it was like, you're totally okay. Like you can yeah. come home. Yeah. You know, obviously beautiful to read about that. And the, the, the next essay is, it's a sad one and a happy one. And, a you know, even make, makes you laugh a bit. Cause Sam would have laughed, Sam, sorry, you know, about your cousin, sorry about the loss of your cousin. Thanks. And there's, you know, the, the ritual that you kind of put together because you're not, you're not in India, you're not in a, an area that has a, lot, a big Indian population. Um, well, you know, Americanized version with the coconut. Yep. And this idea of what leaving in the water um, to to remember him to how, how would you how would you specify or define what the, the process putting the of coconut the in the water is? Yeah, uh, I think, yeah, it's a way of acknowledging the loss. Right. It's like there is you're sort of like taking the thing that's inside of you and like putting it into the world. Right. Mm -hmm. So your grief is manifested in the coconut. You're putting it into the water. I think you're trying to sort of like move your grief mm. a little bit is what you're trying to do there. Mm. Um, although in my case, that grief just kept coming back yes. um, because coconuts don't sink in the ocean, folks, in case you were wondering, uh -huh. it did not work very well. I think <laughs> one big thing with that essay 
is that is the thing I thought about a lot is um when you are trying to replicate rituals mm. from a culture, but you no longer in the place where that culture is dominant, uh-huh. like you're kind of just like uh remaking everything right you're trying to like Mm. approximate rituals and you're Mm. trying to sort of like figure out this thing that made sense over there how do i make it make sense here and sometimes it doesn't Mm. um but that particularly around grief like i i think um figuring out your grief rituals is so important Mm. um but but sort of this realization that maybe those like past grief rituals like they don't work because i'm not in the place where they did work um and so, you know, a lot of what I've had to figure out around Sam is like, one of my grief rituals is I watch my cousin Vinny every year uh-huh. um, around his birthday because he loved that movie. And that's a place where I can feel like connected to him. Mm. Um, but really, I think it is a challenge that a lot of kids of immigrants face is that we are raised with all of these sort of approximated rituals. Mm. And we do them when we're kids because we're supposed to. But I think as you get older, like the questions of like, does this ritual fulfill me? Does it give me meaning? is it helping me to process mm. this thing? Uh, I think can be hard questions. And the answer is, is sometimes no, like I'm mm. doing it, but it's not doing anything for me. The the chapter ends on, you know, with the kind of a smile, like realizing like, ah, oh, Sam would have had a good laugh out of this. Like that coconut yeah. just wouldn't, wouldn't leave the shore, leave it shore. I like in reading it, it's not the coconut refusing to leave shore. It's it's shore. And I thought that it's was so important. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's like it wanted to be there. Hmm. The Welsh word "hereath," hereath, yeah, here, yeah. Right. The next essay is about that feelings of nostalgia, but hereath is not exactly nostalgia. Would you define it as such? Uh, I think I would say hereath is like it's. I think sometimes when we think about nostalgia, we're thinking about like a past event, right, mm-hmm. or a past experience, and I think hereath is really about like the feelings that were happening. So it's like this, it's like, you know, there were this, these feelings that you were having and Mm -hmm. you, you miss the feelings, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, that's what you feel like you've lost is, is the ability to experience those feelings. You long for those feelings. Right. And I, I'm, I'm obsessed first of all, with just words that cannot be translated. Yep. And I'm obsessed with saudade. Are we, am I saying that's correct? Yeah. Yep. Right. You, you write so well about the, that, that Portuguese word, the, from your writing, it's the Portuguese word for nostalgia, saudade, a sentiment best expressed in the melancholic longing of fado songs. Um, saudade, later, saudade, a sense of missingness of lost lovers or homes, the love that remains even after the objects of that love are gone. Beautiful. Yeah, yeah. And all three of those words, right? That essay is kind of a fun one because it's like three words that like don't actually have a translation. Right. Um, You're just like circling around them all the time being like, Uh what is this thing? What is this thing? Am I feeling this thing? But like, there's not an English equivalent for any of those words. And just just the idea of um, home is where the family is, which again, could come off as as a trope or it's been done before, but just the way you you finesse it and you massage it and there's just really well done. Um. So, you know, some of the other chapters you talk about like words that single words that kind of are anchors of the chapter. One is, is Sharam. Sharam. Yep. Sharam. Yep. Shame. Yeah. Yeah. And just ideas of shame. And I think that, that's the one you compared to like, like the cousin who's like, you know, kind of maybe more risque, like on Instagram and, but also like good for her. Yeah, that's right. right. Yeah. The point is not to be like, Oh, you shouldn't do that. Uh-huh. The point is like, 
why is anyone doing any of this? Like, <laughs> why is anyone making any of us feel bad about the choices that we make? Right. Like right. do your thing. If that's your thing, go yeah. for it and do it. Right. In the same way that like, if I want to tell stories, like tell uh -huh. them with blessings as opposed to like, um, feeling this fear or weight that like anything you do, there's going to be a shame response to it. Right. And just kind of really like emblematic of the success of the book is you, you do the, like the historical or mythical connection to like Ramayana and Sita. Mm -hmm. And this is, sorry, Sita was the woman or, or Sita yep, was the woman. Yep, right? yep. And that she like totally against her will was, was like kidnapped. But then when she was returned, it's like, well, what happened to her? Has she been defiled? Like, right. Totally innocent in the matter. Yeah. Yeah. And then ends with that beautiful image of like, kind of like if you, if that, that the child of you from, I don't know, maybe a picture when you're four or five, something like that, you could have been more like Priya. Right. Am I, am, I right. Kinda, am I saying that right? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Like to yeah. not have that weight of shame, which she doesn't seemingly, which is awesome. Right. Uh -huh. It's kind of, I think there's some envy. Eh. <laughs> envy maybe is like too intensive a word, but like kind of looking and being like, you are free of it. And that's amazing. And uh -huh. like, I, I want that freedom. And I definitely want my daughter to have that freedom. I don't right. want her to like live her life calculating mm -hmm. how much shame is it going to bring if I do this thing that like, mm -hmm. Um, and because I think the question that I really, I'm trying to think about in that essay is like, who does shame serve? Yeah. Right. Who's uh, it for? Because right. it's definitely not for the person who it's being put on. That's for sure. They're not benefiting from it. And so, you know, really that in the context of like my culture and family, shame serves patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Shame serves controlling women's bodies. It serves controlling women's minds. It controls, it serves controlling women's words. Um, and so what was being sort of like messaged to me as like inappropriate was really, um, you're pushing back against patriarchy. Mm -hmm. Like you're disrupting the norms around who has power mm -hmm. because when you put words on paper, like you're asserting power. Definitely. No, no doubt about it. The, it's a good connection too to, um, you know, ideas of shame and, uh, I was looking for it in, in the words you're using in the book. I, I think I'd maybe recognize if I heard a little bit of it, but a lot of my students who, who speak Punjabi or Urdu or Hindi, they recognize it. We watched the um, Patriot Act with Hassan Minhaj. Yeah, yes, definitely. And so 9-11, you talk about the difference in, you know, where you, where you grew up in the post and pre. And he has a story and I'm people listening. Sorry, I've said, I've used this story probably three or four times, but he writes about 9-12, September 12th. And how there was a racist, there was racism against him and his family, his car, you know, his, his car windows were broken in and that image of his dad, like sweeping up the glass and saying, basically in, in Hindi, I believe, like, what will people think? Yeah. Well, he has the, the piece in, in, in Homecoming King too, right? Um, I'm sorry. That's the one I'm so because I think it's a show, right? Yeah. Homecoming, Homecoming King, King. Pardon me. Is, yeah. That's what I'm talking about. Yep. Is the, the Lokya Kainge. Like what are people going to say? Right. Mm -hmm. Um, he talks about it in the context of the wanting to go to, uh, prom with the girl, like, and right. yes, just this, right. I think it is a thing that a lot of your students will resonate with. And it's mm -hmm. definitely something I resonate with. Um, this sense of like, what are people going to say if we do this thing? And then the question becomes, well, who are the people? Like, uh, who are we talking about yeah, when we yeah, say yeah, yeah, yeah. people will say something? It's like, who are the people? Do we really care what they think? And mm -hmm. also, like, why does it what is it about them that makes it so what they think matters so much? Right. Mm -hmm. And 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 for me, like 
yeah, I'm 43. It has taken me a really long time to sort of like ask that question of who, who is this for? Who does it serve? Mm. Um, and, and when you start to ask that question, what you realize is most often the people not served are the people who are more marginalized in the situation. Mm. Mm-hmm. In the last essay, not, not like a plot spoiler, um, you know, in, in the last chapter, it talks about kind of like putting it all together. And when, you know, decided to, when you got the award, the award or the fellowship, the Hinman. Uh-huh. To Heinemann. Yep. Heinemann. Yep. And just the idea of like, I'm, you know, you see these families that they go six generations, seven generations, eight generations back, you know, the family plot, the family cemetery. And your expression is basically, you know, yes, I'm from here, but I'm not necessarily of here. I wonder what that means. Is that a, is that a happy ending? Is that a ending still in progress? And just kind of how that Chris, how that crystallized through through writing this book. You know, it's funny. It's actually, I think it's always going to be an evolving uh, relationship, I think. But in some ways, since publishing the book, I feel like my connections to Appalachia are stronger than they have been at points prior, like since leaving, like basically Mm -hmm. in the space uh, after I left to now, um, the process of publishing this book has just like brought me into relationship with so many people Mm -hmm. who have similar feelings, people who are expats. um, We call ourselves expat Alachians, right? Mm -hmm. So don't live in Appalachia anymore, but share sort of my feelings about the place. People who are living in Appalachia right now who are like, this book is helping me make meaning of navigating this experience. And so, yeah, it's like, it is definitely only generation. Like my daughter is not going to be Appalachian in the same way that I am. Hmm. But I don't think that means there's less value to the experience. And I think for a long time, I thought that if I couldn't track it back that far, it meant it didn't matter as much. Hmm. Uh, And instead, I think now what it just means is that like, I have a perspective that's mine. Mm. Um, and I, I'm not trying to say more than that, right? Like I'm mm. not, this is not a book of like big claims. It's like the antithesis of hillbillyology. Like mm-hmm. I don't have a policy platform that I'm trying to push. I'm not trying to say definitive things about Appalachia and like who it is and what it is and what it isn't. But I think what I'm trying to do is say like, this is a story of a people in a place in that moment. Um, and this is what I learned from it and how it continues to shape me now. Um, right. and I think, I feel confident in that story. It uh, it ends with with a letter, um, a thank you note from a Mr. Morris, uh, or or sorry, Mr. Morris's family, right? Yep. And that's just such a cool way. And it ends with and with those words, I am home again, even if it's only home for one generation. Yes. What <laughs> an ending to what an ending to to an incredible book. Um, I know you got like free throws to practice on and stuff and we could be here for four hours <laughs> talking about all the great themes and all the, you know, each chapter definitely moving the one about your neighbor in Boston and, and ideas of neighborliness. If that's a word, you know, the, the second amendment and what you've seen in Boston versus what you saw in, in West Virginia. I look forward to getting a copy. Like I said, I read the, the Kindle. I look forward to getting a physical copy and put it in my classroom library and kind of nudging a few students like, Hey, you want to, Hey, you got five minutes. You want to check out the, first, you know, because it's yeah. uh, such a great read. I wonder, uh, that, that's a great transition to any future projects. Like you said, I mean, the book is, you know, a, a teenager could read it. I wonder if maybe there's a like a young reader's edition down the road. 
you know, I, I think it is actually pretty accessible in its like, I think a high school student could totally access this version yeah. of the book. Yeah. I have fantasies of turning that be like be like will essay into a children's book i feel like it would make oh, a great yeah. children's book yes. or like a little like um an, an animated short i feel like it mm-hmm. tracks that kind of story in a nice way yeah. and do i have the skills to do either of those things no <laughs> so it's probably not gonna happen but if you're someone who knows how to write children's books or mm. wants to make an animated short let me know because i think it'd be really good um yeah, you can see well. like a, a pixar version of that story with the no coach doubt player um and the no granny doubt. shot um so yeah uh i don't know if there will be other iterations of this book um mm-hmm. it'll be interesting to see yeah it, it, it's it is certainly on its own journey i think what's funny at this point we're like almost seven months out from publication and i think my learning is that um books kind of take on their own life um yeah. and and start to do things that you're like okay like you uh-huh. go and do your thing book. I don't know what you're doing right now, but I'm glad you're doing it. Uh, <laughs> you, you have to like relinquish a little bit of control and acknowledge that that's the cool thing about it is then readers start to find it and then they share it with other readers and it really, right. um, it takes on a life of its own. Mm. What, um, you know, do you have any other future projects? I mean, it's only been seven months and you're probably like, I'm good for now, but anything else that you're working on? I am. I'm working on a second essay collection, also oh. not a memoir just a disclaimer <laughs> called, called not uh, a memoir yeah. not a memoir that should be the subtitle for this next <laughs> one um uh but it is tentatively titled the book of broken rules Ooh. um and it is a book about just the rules that i feel like i internalized a lot growing up about race and gender and like ways of being in the world and then how um how i like keep breaking or unlearning those rules Mm. and so you know um i feel like i don't like the phrase midlife crisis i like to call it midlife unlearning um (laughs) but i feel like i'm definitely in a period of my life where i'm sort of looking at a lot of things and being like why do i do it that way or should we do it that way and so each of the essays is kind of looking at, at that like what is this way of being that i was taught and who's it for um, and wow. do we need to do it that way? So That's, that sounds really cool. Wow. Yeah. Good, good luck with that. Good luck with all, of, all of the future work. It was uh, so cool talking to you. Like I said, uh, you know, great work that you do in the classroom. I, I guarantee those are really lucky students and just thanks for uh, letting me get into your head a little bit and talk about this, this great book. Yeah. Thanks Pete for having me. And uh, I'll see you next year with Abraham Vergase for I'm, sure. I'm, oh, <laughs> quote me on that. Quote me on that. Get real, real quick. Shout out any social media or like a good local bookstore or any places to, to buy the book. Yeah. You can find me on Twitter. I'm at Avashia Nima. Um, you can also, my website is just my name, NimaAvashia.com. Um, and you can actually get my book at any independent bookstore. Um, okay. So I encourage you to do that. Um, yes go to your local bookstore and get it from them. Local bookstores have been amazing champions of this book and I, I wouldn't be anywhere without them. So no doubt. Are you extremely online as the kids say? I am. I am fairly online. Yes. <laughs> fairly online. <laughs> I, I know that people say Twitter is a cesspool, but apparently I enjoy the cesspool. <laughs> I say it's successful, but I'm on there, you know, I'm not leaving. So <laughs> exactly. You know, <laughs> there's great. There's some great people on there too. Yes. Uh, Appalachian Twitter is an amazing place. So oh, wow. It, it, okay. it's, it's a good place. It's not a cesspool. Appalachian Twitter is a wonderful, beautiful place. So you just got to find your your place where you're like, this is not toxic. Uh-huh. Other things might be, but this area is not. Exactly. Exactly. Again, thanks so much. And I wish you great luck in the future. It was awesome talking to you. 
Thank you, Pete. I appreciate it. Take care. Take care. What a pleasure it has been today to speak to Nima Avashia for episode 143. Continue good luck to her with her writing, and I'm so looking forward to continuing to follow her career and her important work. You can now subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a five-star review. You can also ask for it by name using Alexa and find it on Stitcher, Spotify, and on Amazon Music. Follow me on Instagram where I'm at Chills of Will podcast or on Twitter where I'm at Chills of Will PO1. You can watch this and other episodes on YouTube. Watch and subscribe to the Chills of Will podcast channel. Please subscribe to both my YouTube channel and my podcast while you're checking out this episode. This is a passion project of mine, a DIY operation, and I'd love for your help in promoting what I'm convinced is a unique and spirited look at an often ignored art form. The intro song for the Chills of Will podcast is Wind Down Instrumental, and the other song played on the episode was Hoops Instrumental by Matt Whitehour, and both songs are used through archesaudio.com. Please tune in for episode 144 with Gustavo Barona Lopez. He is a writer and educator from Richmond, California. In his writing, Barahona Lopez draws from his experience growing up as the son of Mexican immigrants. His poetry chapbook, Lost and Other Rivers That Devour, was published by Nomadic Press in February 2022. This episode will air on October 4th. For now, thanks again for listening. I hope that these quarantine days bring you texts by writers with mad skills, like Nima Avashia, whose work, like another Appalachia, coming up queer and Indian in a mountain place. Gives you chills at will.